Hey, it's Perrin. Before we start today's show, I got a favor to ask of you. We recently set a record for daily podcast downloads in a single day. We hit about 550 downloads, and that was a record by a good shot for us. We appreciate everybody who's in our network and in our audience. And just like you, when you grow your patient base through referrals, we grow our podcast audience through referrals. If you're on your iPhone, for example, and you're looking at our podcast episode or the title page on it, there are three little dots in the upper right-hand corner. If you click on those three dots, it brings up a menu. And most of the way down the menu, there's something that says, Share Show. If you click on Share Show, you can text or email our podcast to any of your friends or colleagues or people you think might benefit from the subject matter we share. We get a lot of great compliments on the content we share from almost every phone call I take. And I really appreciate everybody being in the audience. So if I'm not asking too much, I'm going to ask you to share our show with a couple of friends, colleagues, or people you think might benefit. It's the way we'll expand our audience. And DeWalker and I would be eternally grateful for it. Thanks very much in advance. And with that, on to the show. Welcome to the Group Dentistry Now Show, the voice of the DSO industry. Kim Larson and Bill Newman talk to industry leaders about their challenges, successes, and the future of group dentistry. Visit groupdentistrynow.com for more DSO analysis, news, and events. Looking for a job or have a job to fill? Visit joindso.com. We hope you enjoy today's show. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Group Dentistry Now show. Everybody, thanks for, for joining us again. Uh, whether you're listening in on uh, Google, Apple, Spotify, any one of those listening apps, or you happen to be watching us on YouTube, uh, thanks for being part of the Group Dentistry Now show. Uh, we have two great guests, as always, without an audience. We wouldn't have these great guests coming in because they'd be like, who are we going to be talking to? But we've got a wonderful audience from all over the world. I think we're in like 27 countries right now. Uh, we have Perrin Desports. He is from Polaris Healthcare Partners. Perrin, welcome. First time to the Group Dentistry Now show, right? It is. Great to be on with you, Bill. We go so far back, and I, I can't believe it's taken us this long to uh, sync up the mics and everything. By the way, I don't speak a lot of foreign languages, so depending on what those 27 countries are, this may fall a little flat, okay? Just a heads up. <laughs> Well, thank goodness most of them understand English, I hope. Uh, and then we also have Dr. Jason Tenori, and it's also his first time as well on the Group Dentistry Now show. So Jason, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to maintain some dialogue with you guys, and uh, I'm sure I'll learn a ton. And, and Dr. Tenori is the CEO and founder of Finger Lakes Dental Care. So we're going to find out all about Finger Lakes Dental Care on this podcast. We're, we're going to get into some topics that I think the audience is going to find really interesting and helpful. So we're going to talk about, you know, early growth stages. We're going to talk about how this inflation is affecting business today and everything in between. So I, I'm really excited. Uh, Dr. Tenori, talk a little bit about uh, your background and uh, Finger Lakes Dental Care. Yeah, great. So I'm uh, I'm a graduate of University of Pennsylvania. Um, about 22 years ago, did a residency and then um, found this pretty unique place in upstate New York to start a practice. 
Um, my wife and I started it and um, just blessed to have it grow. And uh, after a few years, started to get the itch of maybe uh, growing a little bit more. So we brought on some associates and some more uh, people to help us support the patient base. And next thing you knew, we were we were at five locations and spread out amongst the Finger Lakes and have a couple more um, in the pipeline to be open here by the end of the summer. And um, just enjoying the, enjoying it, right? Just I just love the idea of just growing and growing my team and serving the community. And that's really what, what motivates us and kind of gets us out of bed. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. And about uh, 20 years up there now in the Finger Lakes. Yeah. It's crazy to say that, right? So 20 years, uh, where, where the hell does time go? Um, but yeah, for sure. For sure. And quick question before we go over to Perrin, when did you start to uh, expand, go from that one location? Did you start with one location? We did. Yeah. So you reach a point, right, where you're at some type of capacity and you have to make a decision. Um, do you raise fees and start to to have some of the, the patients on the bottom kind of drop off? Um, do you start to get more selective with the procedure mix? And these are all things that we entertain. But really, at the end of the day, our um, our vision is to charge a fair fee and serve anyone that values us. And that meant that we were just going to have an unbelievable um demand. And um, to deal with that, we decided to, to bring on team members, associates, clinical staff, front administrative staff, support services. And that's the route that we've decided to go. Certainly not suggesting it's the right route or the wrong route, but that's just the route that we decided to go to facilitate um, the growth. That's great. All right, Perrin, uh, we're, uh, we're going to go with you. You've had background, I think it's 27 years in the dental industry. I know I met you when you were at Patterson as a manager, and I think it was in yep. Charlotte. So you, but your background even goes, you, you started before Patterson at Thompson, I think it was. Yeah, jack of all trades, master of none, as we like to say, right? I uh um, you could almost say, Bill, uh, not to go way, way back, but I was kind of born into the business. So Thompson Dental Company was a, a family-held dental distribution business headquartered out of Columbia, South Carolina. And I was actually fourth generation in that business. My great-grandfather, um, uh, James Perrin Thompson, started the company in 1899, of all things. And my grandfather was chairman of the board. Um, my father was president and CEO of the business. I joined the business in um, 1990, 1995, uh, and we elected to sell the business to Patterson in April of 2002. And I like to say not for financial reasons necessarily, but due to poor equity transition planning. My father has two sisters, um, neither of whom worked in the business, uh, nor did their husbands or their kids. And upon my grandfather's ultimate demise, and he was 84, I think, at the time we, we sold the business, his estate was going to be share and share alike. So you can kind of do the math in your mind about, you know, one person, my dad, um, running the business, operating the business, growing the business, suffering all the challenges, stress, and all that that we all know as business owners. Business had like 400 employees and was on the run rate of about 100 million in revenue. So it was a pretty, pretty decent sized company. But it would be really quick that he would be um, uh, outvoted if somebody else wanted to get their money out and sell the business. And that would be a calamity. So Patterson, you know, in, in 
the early 2000s after the dot-com burst, if you think way, way back to that effect, there was no private capital going into a sleepy dental distribution company, you know, I mean, in our business, it's high fixed cost, inventory based, um, just a challenging business to run, but a successful business. And Patterson was a great uh, transition for a lot of us. I stayed on for 15 years with them. I ran three different businesses between Richmond, Virginia, Metro, New York, New Jersey, and ultimately Charlotte. And um, had a great career. I mean, I, I learned a lot of things that I would not have learned in a family held business. I've always liked to say that I miss the opportunity to continue working with my father and continue that legacy. But Patterson was really, really good to me for, for 15 years. And they gave me a lot of responsibility early on. I, I left Patterson in January of 2017 to launch a prior venture that focused on uh, entrepreneurial group practices. And I know we're going to dig into that a lot today, but if you think in, you know, the early 20 teens, like coming out of the, the housing collapse, there were a lot of people like Dr. Tanuri who were, uh, I like to say, entrepreneurs at heart, uh, great, successful clinicians, but they desired to own more than one location. And my partners and I at the time saw the challenges they encountered. I saw it from the Patterson lens because they were customers of ours and, you know, candidly all seemed to be suffering the same challenges, making the same mistakes. And there were no real resources there to guide them to, to how to transition the business off of their literally clinical skills and into uh, a more sustainable business. It wasn't totally based on them. And then if they did reach some level of success, how to transact the business because a traditional dental practice broker wasn't equipped to do that. So we launched a prior business that would help entrepreneurial dentists start, grow, and ultimately sell their group practice. And DeWalker Sinha, my co-founding partner at Polaris, and I uh, continue that work today. So everything we focus on at Polaris comes out of my experience in dental distribution running uh, mid-tier and, and large-tier markets, honestly. And uh, DeWalker's background is in healthcare lending. So all of these entrepreneurs like Dr. Tanuri who are using bank funds to grow, how do you do that successfully? How do you maintain growth capital? And how do you execute uh, to build a business for scale? And it's a fast-growing segment of the business and one that has still a tremendous amount of opportunity ahead of it. So we're thrilled to be in the space for sure. I haven't fired myself yet for what it's worth. So <laughs> that's good. Uh, yeah, that I don't even know how to follow up on that one. That's so good. <laughs> Dr. Tenari hasn't fired you either, right? So that's yeah, he's uh, on the podcast. Uh, he, so he, wonderful. He, he's called me some other things off <laughs> mic and off camera and all, but you know, never, never, never the Donald Trump. You're fired. Get out of here. So yeah. true story. True story. That's funny. <laughs> Dr. Tenori, before before we get into um, you know what what makes Finger Lakes Dental Care different, so I do want to ask you that, and I'd also like to also ask Perrin about how he uh, Polaris stands out. Um, you are a coach at the Dental Success Network, so talk talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, Dr. Mark Costas started the Dental Success Institute, I think about ten years ago now, and it's a really unique. Um, coaching group in the sense that uh, we take on um, clients into the group, they get vetted and um, they're actually coached and mentored by other dentists, other doctors, other entrepreneurs. They're called black belt coaches and I'm, I'm blessed to be one of them, but it's a unique consulting arrangement in the sense that typically in most businesses, um, these docs who sign up for a consulting agreement are mentored by 
hygienists that have graduated onto consulting or um, business people, uh, but not clinicians. So not people that have typically been in the weeds and been in the whirlwind and really can can live it and can can relate to a lot of the struggles that some of these um, dentists slash entrepreneurs are having. So uh, I find so much joy in being able to collapse time for some of these clients and really uh, get them to a point in their life much sooner than I got there um, through just intimate conversations, face-to-face on the phone, just working through everything from uh, you know, a balance sheet, profit and loss statement to trying to operationalize uh, servant leadership principles so they can become the best versions of themselves. So I find tons of joy in that and it uh, uh, keeps me busy. Talk, talk a little bit about Finger Lakes Dental Care, just the uniqueness, the model. Uh, I'd love to get, you know, you, you obviously have competition up there. You talked a little bit about, well, hey, we were when we were at one location, you know, what, strategically, what do we do? Do we raise our fees? And you went in a different direction. So I'd love to love to hear a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on on Finger Lakes and why you've been so successful. Yeah, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, not to sound soft, but I, I think so much of it is is dependent on culture, and so much of it is depending on core values and what you really stand for and, and what you're trying to do. Um, and I bought into that many years ago and it took a while to get the flywheel of momentum moving, but I feel that we have a culture that is second to none. Um, we treat our team uh, exceptionally well, um, not necessarily just in monetary measures, but more so in love languages and appreciation languages. Um, and really trying to create a situation where they feel a ton of fulfillment in their job and making sure they're aware of how important they are um, on a regular basis, uh, how the work that they do matters, um, and just really trying to, to make sure that they understand um, how important they are and, and make sure that they all leave for the day with a sense of fulfillment and a, and, and a sense of purpose. Uh, and that's really what I think helped us in terms of um, we have minimal turnover. Um, we have about 100 employees, uh, and you know I'm 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 obviously biased, right? But um, I get a general feel that people love to come to work. They really have clarity on how what they do matters, um, and you know a lot of them would take a bullet for us. So I just feel really good about what we're developing. It took a while. It wasn't like read a book on Friday and and Monday morning you have it down, right? It's years in the making, but um, I feel like we're, we're headed in the right direction and, and we're starting to, to gain a lot of momentum. And that's really what's allowed us to kind of catapult over the last few years and, and open up some additional locations and, and recruit um, some other uh, professionals that were, you know, already in jobs, not actively looking for work, but they were just looking to go from a good situation to a great one. Uh, and that's what I think we're able to provide. That's great, Jason. And you met, had mentioned that you've got two more locations that you'll be, are these uh, acquisitions or are these de novos that you'll be opening up or, or acquiring in this summer? Uh, one of each. So of an acquisition, um, hopefully here within the next month or two, and then a, a pedo ortho de novo uh, towards the end of October that's um, that's going to serve, uh, serve a lot of people in a community about uh, 25, 30 minutes from our flagship. 
That's great. We'll touch. We'll touch on that a little later on in the podcast, Perrin uh, Polaris. So again, yeah, differentiating yourself. There's uh, which is amazing. If you look back six, seven years ago, there really wasn't any anybody that was focused on entrepreneurial dentist, right? So you may you had a lot of practice management consultants, which were working with people that had one location. Uh, in most cases, so now there's there's some uh, other other people out there doing things similar. Perhaps to, to talk about Polaris and how you differentiate yourself. Yeah, and I mean maybe I'll build off of what uh, Jason started with because we've gotten to uh, know uh, Jason and Mark Costas and a lot of the people in that dental success organization quite well over the last year. Or so known them for a long time, but you know really kind of. Um, uh, gotten closer to him, I'll say, in the last uh, handful of months or so. And I think if you think if you think about um, your typical entrepreneur who's building a group practice, they probably worked with a dental practice management consultant at some point, or maybe several. And a lot of them um, focus on uh, you know clinic level operations, systems and processes, scheduling efficiency, hygiene retention, culture, like Jason said, and and all of that is. Um, super critical to running one or two or you know maybe even three locations. But if you're going to build a multi-location group, and if the intent is to scale it or centralize operations, that's a completely different kettle of fish as it relates to what the um, consulting objectives are. We don't. We are not clinical dentists. Uh, we we don't do what Jason does. We have not trod that path, and we're really really clear about that. Um, that being said. If you're going to build a successful group like Jason has, it won't be dependent upon your clinical skills only. Um, it'll be dependent upon the ability to uh, either start locations for DeNovo and, and grow them successfully uh, to, to operational break even, to cash flow break even, to net equity break even on balance sheet, creating equity on balance sheet. If you're going to acquire practices, it's going to be to, to uh, not overpay for them and understand the revenue generation and the cost synergies that you bring to the table. Uh, if you're going to attract associates and retain them for the long haul, you need to have arguably some uh, methodology around which those associates become partners in the business, be it buy-in or earn-in or a combination of both. And then you need to understand how debt funds are going to be used for future growth to expand the footprint of the practice. All of that that I kind of rattled off is what we do for these early stage groups. And that's that's more... I'd call it maybe C-suite consulting, um, and that's a differentiator that DeWalker and I have had in our past in terms of leading uh, larger groups, businesses uh, within our, our prior lives to uh, some level of growth and scale and bringing a lot of those principles of corporate America to group dental practices, because building a successful group will be will be based on a lot more than just the founder's uh, clinical capabilities. And, and I think that's that's where we're arguably suited best. Our business has two pieces to it. Um, one is that kind of consulting side, the growth and scale side, the things that I just rattled off. And the second side uh, is more transactional base, which could be uh, recapitalizing the debt and getting a, a, a commitment from a lender for growth capital to continue to grow and scale the business uh, and or exiting the business altogether, sell-side advisory. So what you've seen in the last 
really 50, like coming out of uh, COVID and the COVID hangover, when basically all M&A activity and in, in, across the globe, not just in dental and, and the United States, but across the globe, all M&A activity basically ceased. Nobody, you know, all businesses were shut down. Nobody knew what cash flows were, let alone how to value those things accurately on a future projection. And then we made up for a heck of a lot of lost time in 2021. And M&A activity was through the roof globally. Um, it was, you know, a spike the football year for those in M&A. We closed a handful of transactions in, in Polaris as well. Um, but I think the beauty of our business is that it's not dependent upon only consulting or only sell-side advisory. If Jason, for just as an example, were to come to us and say, if he didn't know us and say, hey, guys, do you think I should continue to grow the business or should I? is this a good point to exit? If we were only a consulting business, we'd say, Jason, you'd be a fool to sell the business. Look at all the cash flow you're drawing out of it. This is a cash cow. You should keep it forever. And on the other hand, if we were a sell-side M&A advisor, we would say, Jason, you'd be a fool not to sell it. Look at the returns people are getting, multiples that are an all-time high. You should exit now. Polaris does both. And our analytics back up all of that. So our first answer to those types of questions from someone like Jason would be, I don't know. Let's run the numbers. Let's see what we think. We'll tell you both sides of the story and what our best guess is. And then let's work toward the solution and the time frame that best suits you based on where you are and what your needs are. And if that's consulting, we can help you do that. And if that's this is the best time to capitalize on the business, we can help you do that too. So we, we have, I hate to put it this way, Bill, we're going to get paid either way if we do our job, right? So, but we're not decided one way or another. And that, that gives us hopefully a little bit better clarity around guidance. The last thing I'll tell you is that we are analytically driven. And Jason has experienced this. We are numbers-oriented geeks. We can spread financials and create models in, in Excel that make your head spin. DeWalker and I can't do it. We pay people to do that, but that's part of our, our business. And a lot of that financial clarity is what gives us better um, confidence around the guidance we give clients because the numbers bear out something and we usually have a forward-looking projection to that to that effect. It's a financial model based around credit modeling and banking because again, our clients are not private equity-backed groups and they are not traditional solo practices. They're entrepreneurs who want to build group practices and, and typically expand the footprint, improve the profitability of those businesses and they're using bank funds to do it. If the bank cuts them off, it doesn't matter what your growth strategy is. So we want to understand from a credit lens how far the bank's going to be willing to go to see Jason's vision to fruition or where he might um, bump up against a threshold that would cause him to stall outside of what he can control. And I think that's really, really important from a grounding standpoint on what we do and the guidance we give. Thanks, Perrin. Uh, let's, let's get into the group discussion. I've got some really good topics here I think would be super important for some of the audience to hear. Uh, so Jason, and again, I don't know your exact situation, but one, one of the questions is you're a practicing clinician and how do you transition from, you know, the role while you're, you know, you're seeing patients every single day to more of a leadership role and where are you in that transition? 
Yeah, I wish there was a roadmap to answer that question. I wish it was like a, you know, transition for dummies book. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I could probably write it because uh, I've made every mistake possible. Currently, I'm practicing two clinical days a week. Um, I don't need to practice clinically, but I love the idea of, of rotating in our group and just making sure that I have touch points with as many people as possible. Um, so that's the main reason I do it. Um, it's also hard to mentor young doctors and um, give them advice on clinical situations when you're not in the trenches with them. And I think that's one of the reasons the coaching group at DSI is so successful is, you know, all of the advice and mentorship we try to give is through real world experience, not through reading a book or, you know, hearing it from someone else. Um, but to answer your question, I'm two days clinically right now. Um, it was a, it was tough to figure that out. It was tough to figure out the transition. It went from, you know, four days, four and a half days, five days. Um, then you bring on the associate and then the original mindset is, okay, I have an associate now I can back off. And then I see it all too often is the, the founding doc or the primary doc backs off too quickly and doesn't offer the, the mentorship that that young associate needs. And then that relationship unfortunately dissolves. So, um, it depends on the situation. It depends on the, the facility capacity, it depends on the patient demand. Um, but slow and steady is the way that I've done it over time. And we're talking 20 years and it was the right situation for me. There's lots of ways to get to the, to, to get to that finish line. But um, for me personally, it was slow and steady um, and getting to the point where I'm two days a week clinical now. Yeah, that, that, that makes makes a lot of sense. And you touched on the, the mentorship part of it, which, you know, Perrin, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see with some of your clients. And does that um, seem to make sense? I mean, obviously, it's working for Jason and, uh, and Finger Lakes. Yeah, I mean, well, he's excellent at it. Uh, it, it goes without saying. And we've had, um, you know, practical experience in, in working with him individually and, and understanding the business that he's in the process of building. I would tell you that you know, to kind of echo Jason's point, one of the first challenges that uh, somebody goes through is that transition out of the chair. And dentists, by and large, make really healthy personal incomes out of a successful practice. And we're all capitalists. You know, we none of us do what we do for free. And I, like both of you, enjoy earning income and and the toys that it brings you know or the vacations or the kids in private school and all that kind of stuff and so we have this level of income that we're accustomed to generating out of a business and we have a standard of living on the personal lifestyle standpoint um, that the business feeds the lifestyle and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that one of the biggest challenges when you start to replace yourself clinically is you got to pay somebody to do the work that you're no longer doing and they don't do that work for free. So how much business, how much uh, additional margin income is the business generating to offset that kind of reinvestment in the practice and in the role that the, the founder is transitioning out of? And a lot of them aren't ready for that. They have a lifestyle that's I'll say maxed out to the income threshold that the business generates. But if you're going to build a group practice, you're going to be focused more on creating wealth than personal income necessarily. And, and that's a mindset shift. And I think it catches a lot of people out. 
um, and they're not prepared for the potential financial impact. We spend a lot of time with clients verbalizing that, modeling that, figuring out um, cost-based standard of living uh, and and the, the margin, the additional margin that an entrepreneur like Jason is going to have to generate in the business when he starts to pay somebody the work that, to do the work that he's leaving behind. There is a, a numerical analytical answer to that. And I think we need to get close to that for a firm understanding of what the transition is going to look like. And does your lifestyle have any buffer? Like, can you support a potential income drop? Or if you can't, what's the impact you're going to have to make on the business? So that's really the first step out of the chair, I would say, and, and something that um, if we if we do our job correctly, we can um, minimize potentially that impact for a founder. Yeah, it's just, just yeah, to touch on that. I mean, it's such a great point. And, and you know, parents use the term, and I don't know if he's coined it, called the founder's dilemma. And it's it's truly a dilemma where unless things are really set up correctly, as soon as you bring on an associate to take on some of these clinical responsibilities, you will see a decrease in your income. And how do you navigate that? It's just so dependent on a number of factors. If you have a, and I was just on a coaching call on Friday that dealt with this issue, a senior doc has a four operatory practice and he's ready to bring in an, an associate. There's no room for them both to provide clinical dentistry in the same, at the same time. So a lot of tough decisions have to be made. If you have a facility that has seven to eight ops, if you have enough patient demand, then you can work side by side. You can mentor and be at the chair at the same time. So all of these things really have to be considered before you just start hiring um, associate dentists. The other thing that, at least for me, is you have to learn to say no to certain procedures. So when I went from, say, four days a week to three days a week, I started limiting my procedural mix. So all of a sudden my hourly revenue went up significantly. When you no longer do quadrants of restorations, uh, quadrants of fillings, you no longer take out single teeth, um, not to suggest that there's not a huge place for that, but if you can train an associate to do that, and then your skill set is more limited to uh, orthodontics, uh, implant dentistry, stuff that's more uh, productive on an hourly basis, you start to level out that founder's dilemma and you can work your way around it. But those are a lot of subtle nuances that really need to be researched and, and considered ahead of time before you just pull the trigger and bring in an associate and throw them in the room down the hall and, and ask them to, to produce some dentistry. There's some uh, there's some great tidbits right there, Jason. That's that, that's that's great info that we have not had on this podcast before. Thank you. Um, let's talk about funding. So here's another dilemma. Right. So you may have access to funds, bank bank funding but how best to spend that. So maybe we'll start with you, Perrin. Yeah, I, uh, I have the blessing or the curse, uh, depending on how you want to look at it, to being surrounded by a bunch of what I call recovering healthcare bankers. So you ought to see some of our group calls and how thrilling they are when you start talking about debt service coverage ratio and you know all this other kind of jazz that really, uh, if you're having trouble sleeping or you need an afternoon nap, that is the call to be on. So um, I think there are a couple of things to to think through, think about, and and uh, be intentional if you're uh, if you're intending to build a, a group practice and be intentional in your communication with a bank. Um, dentists are probably the best credit risk scenario for a bank that there is in the world. I mean, one, they make 
typically make a good bit of income. Dentist uh, solo practices are a reasonable valuation, even, even those that are on the high end. They produce tremendous cash flows. They have great fixed cost and variable cost structures. So a, a, a solo practice, if it doesn't suffer the constraints that Jason meant, mentioned earlier, uh, can, can grow revenues pretty readily and drop a lot of profitability to the bottom line. The borrower for the money that personally guarantees it is going to live, breathe, and work in that business seven days a week. That There's no more secure credit risk than somebody like that. They are literally going to you know, keep the ship afloat or they're going to die trying. And the default rates or, or lack thereof uh, really bear that out. It's a, it's a great, great model um, for a bank. It's a great model for a, a solo dentist buying his or her first practice. Um, and it's, uh, uh, you know, a reason that there are so many lenders in that space that still have dirt cheap cost of funds. That being said, the game changes when you want to have two to three to four to 10 locations. A bank underwrites that credit risk profile differently than a solo practice. And so what typically happens is a dentist borrows money to buy his or her first practice, dirt cheap cost of funds, 10-year term, all's good. And then they decide to borrow money to buy their second practice. And the bank says, well, okay, you've done great on your first one. I, I can probably stomach that. And then the dentist comes back and says, well, I want to borrow some more money to buy number three. And I got number four teed up too. And the bank's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, how many days a week are you going to be working? You can't be everywhere at once. How many days a week are you going to be working in all these practices? Who's going to be running them? Who's, who are the other dentists involved? The default rates start to go up there. And, and that's why retail lenders that dirt cheap cost of funds on the first or second practice start to see uh, them start, the, the, the lenders actually start to say, look, we're, we're good on one or two, maybe three, but not four and beyond. So the dentist says, well, if you're not going to lend on number four or five, I'm just going to go to another lender that will. And it's a subordinated debt structure with higher uh, rates and still probably 10-year terms, but more prepayment penalty structure and things like that. This is a really, really problematic way to build a business for a couple of reasons. One, you have a rising cost of capital outside of the federal fund rates, and we can talk about inflation and all that down the road, but it's an escalating cost of capital structure. And that impacts, especially if you're going to be acquiring practices, how much you're able to pay for them. It is, um, it is a, a cost of capital or is a capital structure that requires constant approval to get transactions done. It's not committed dollars for growth. It's a, yeah, let me get it. Now that I've uh, negotiated the deal with the seller, let me go to the bank and make sure they'll fund it. N nobody does that. Everybody tries to do that. That's not a successful growth strategy. So one of the fundamental services that we provide to people in this early stage is we look at the number of locations they have, the number of banks that are involved, the total capital structure and the stack of the business and the profitability of the whole business. And we try to understand what that entrepreneur's growth strategy is. Is it build, buy or build one additional practice each year? Is it buy or build three? How far do they want to go? What does the next five years look like? And what are the real capital needs of the business? And so we can offer 
usually if the business is well constituted, we can offer debt recapitalization services that not only recapitalize all the three or four different banks that are involved right now, get it under one note with one lender, but the lender also provides something that we would think about as a line of credit. It's it's not a line of credit, but the way you and I think about a line of credit for our, our home equity line of credit or something like that, like we want to build onto the house and add a pool and all that kind of stuff. The, the line of credit or the growth facility of the lender functions that way so that Jason and people like him can have committed capital to take down those subsequent locations. And it's like having conditional pre-approval. It's a better way and a more secure way to grow the business into the next phase versus just saying, God, I hope the bank's going to fund this next location that I've found. You know, hope's not a strategy if you really do want to grow the business. And and when we restructure debt for people, it would allow them to close every bit as quickly as a private equity-backed um, enterprise-level group would be. And if you're uh, arguably more aggressive in your growth strategy or you want to move faster, it's the right solution at the right point in time. So... I'll, I'll I ask Jason this question here. Moving on to one of the biggest issues. Well, maybe it was one of the biggest issues before inflation all of a sudden started to rear its ugly head uh, is the attracting and retaining associates. So Jason, talk a little bit about that strategy. I mean, you've got a de novo, you're, you're acquiring a, a location uh, this year. What's, um, what's, what's the strategy with, with those particular uh, locations? Uh, yeah, good question. So Without a doubt, that's the number one hurdle for us to grow um, the way we want and the pace that we want is finding um, great associates. And um, there's a couple strategies that you can have in place. Obviously, your reputation, culture uh, starts the uh, process of attracting them. Um, a lot of networking. I consider myself a, a drip marketer when it comes to um dealing with prospective associate dentists. I'm constantly in communication with prospective associate dentists, uh, offering everything from clinical mentorship to babysitting their kids uh, if they want to have a date night with their wife. So whatever I need to do to get my foot in the door. Um, but once you do get your foot in the door and once they, they do agree to join you, then you have to back it up with some things that's really going to help from a retention perspective. Uh, culture obviously is number one, you know, making sure that they're going to stay busy, feel valued is, is high on the list. But we've also really um, benefited from uh, DeWalker and Perrin's uh, equity model, their, their RSU model, their earned equity model, where um, prospective associates can become legal partners in the entity, uh, not through this outrageous buy-in, um, but more so through equity earned through their adjusted production. And as I start to deal with more and more younger associates, um, you start to realize that they're coming out of dental school with four or $500,000 in debt. Um, they want to get their first starter home, which, you know, when I was that age, it was $100,000. Now starter homes are $500,000. So right off the bat, they're a million dollars in debt. And now I'm asking a prospective associate to write another check for 500 grand for 50% of of a practice. This is not a realistic expectation. So moving to an earned equity model has really opened up the door for younger associates to become partners in our entity 
without um, any capital buy-in, although that is an option. Um, and they're able to earn a percentage of ownership through working hard and, and producing great dentistry. Oh, that's great. Uh, Perrin, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think Jason hit the nail on the head. You know, I mean, it's the the American Dental Education Association, ADEA, um, had uh, some year-ending statistics um, about the, the recent graduating class. And, you know, 82% of them uh, that graduated had some level of educational, what they call educational debt. It could be dental school. It could be undergrad. Um, but the the average dollar number of those 82% carrying educational debt was $305,000. I mean, that's a staggering number. And this these are not specialists. These are general dentistry uh, graduates. And so, you know, you, to Jason's point, you, there, there's the financial impact of having to pay that off over time. But there's also that psychological impact of, you know, not being ready to, to take on more debt and, and buy into a business. And I think the, the earned equity models, we do two different ones. One's restricted stock units that are RSUs that Jason mentioned. The other one's called profits interest units. They're, they're both earned equity. They function mechanically a little bit differently. And one's the right tool in the right situation. The other's the right tool in a different situation. So we try to look at each client differently in terms of what they're trying to achieve, what their growth strategy is. And we model it differently. But the key is that in the value proposition for somebody in Jason's position is that, you know, if whatever the associate has in their mind in terms of, you know, practice ownership, whether it's them owning a practice outright or being a partner in a business, you're trying to think from their lens at the end of probably a 10-year period, because if they went to the bank and borrowed money and bought their own practice, they'd pay it off usually over 10 years, and then they'd have a practice they could call their own, and it would be valued at some dollar amount, a million dollars, just say, for example. You know, we're trying to work with the Jason Tenuris of the world to model out the economic outcome for that associate at the end of 10 years that says, listen, yeah, you can go borrow your own money. Yeah, you can personally guarantee it. Yeah, you can buy your own business. Yeah, you can hire and fire staff and you can fight with the supply companies and everybody else. Yeah, you can trod the path that Jason Tenuri has already done. You can, you can get paid last for the joy of business ownership, right? Or if Jason can create the same economic outcome over the same period of time, wouldn't you be better off staying on a bigger ship with a business that's already fully functioning and profitable like Jason Tenuri's created? And if, if the answer to that is, yeah, then we have strength in numbers at Finger Lakes Dental. If you're just predisposed to be the king of your own kingdom, come hell or high water, then probably solo practice ownership is the right thing for you because you don't play nice in the sandbox with anybody. And that's okay. There's a, there's a place for that. But in a group practice, if we can create the same economic opportunity they can earn without actually having to borrow money or buy in and take on the risk, it's a wonderful solution in that context. And RSUs and PIUs, restricted stock units and profits interest units, are something that's commonplace in corporate America. DeWalker and I had them at, I had them at Patterson, DeWalker had them at 
East West Bank and Leaf Financial. So these are commonplace in bigger businesses. We're just the first and to my understanding only group that does them and have modeled it successfully for group dental practices, but it works easily well for the same primary principles. So equity earned versus buy-in makes makes a lot of sense, especially with all the debt that that uh, clinicians have coming out of dental school now. Uh, I know we're we're getting gonna get tight on time here pretty quickly, but we have got so many great questions. We're gonna have to do a part two to this because you guys are wealth of knowledge. So um, gro- let's talk a little bit about growth strategies and acquiring practices. We'll go back to Jason because you know he's really doing two different things, right? He's acquiring an existing practice right now, and then he's opening up a de novo and uh, especially de novo pediatric and orthodontics. So talk a little bit about the why behind both of those, if you don't mind, Jason. Yeah, for sure. So we've built this group based on de novo structures only. And um, the reason for that is I wanted to have complete control of everything. And so I, my ego basically got in the way um, and, and it takes me a while to kind of figure it out. So uh, I'm excited about the pursuing the acquisition path. Um, but I have a comfort level with de novos, but to go back to your original question, you know, why do this or or want to do it? Like, I think everybody has to have clarity on what they're really trying to do. It's, it's really scary when you get in a room amongst a lot of very intelligent, very successful people, and you develop your strategy because that guy at the end of the bar has 10 locations and that guy over there has got, you know, 2 million in EBITDA. And all of a sudden you're like, well, then I should have that. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. That's a, it's a, recipe for disaster and ask me how I know. So, you know, I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I have really good clarity with what we want to do. We have a simple, we want to grow 20% year over year. Um, and we want to do it in a very controlled way. We want to make sure that the the culture and the quality of care is never sacrificed. And I've been very, very clear with my team that as soon as I start to feel that it is, being compromised, then I'm pulling the plug on it and, and, and we'll, we'll stay where we're at. That's my strategy that works for me. I know many, many other people that would not care about culture or clinical care and that there's nothing wrong with that, but everybody's got to be able to fall asleep at night um, when their head hits the pillow. And for me, I found that the sweet spot is 20% year over year growth. And I still can feel like that pace is enough for me to control the culture and control the quality of care. Now to kind of speak to the point that Perrin was making a few minutes ago, 10 years ago, when I started this journey, it was all about locations. I need to have a location on that corner and that town and over here and over there. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I've really come to the reality that at the end of the day, the value comes from EBITDA and I'm not suggesting that it needs to be all under one roof, but I've really changed our strategy to, to focus more on um, profitability, collections, EBITDA per location, as opposed to just throwing another location on the map, just another million dollar practice that does 20% EBITDA. I would much rather have a $3 million eight operatory practice um, even if it does the same percentage of EBITDA, it's just a lot less headaches and a lot easier to manage. So, um, and those are just mistakes that I've made and things that I've learned along the way, but that's just a, hopefully a quick, quick summary, quick answer to, to your question on, on how, why we decided to do what. 
Yeah, that, that's that's great, Jason. That's and um, and that answers a little bit of another question that I had was just the outlook for your business in coming years, which it really sounds like you you're looking for that twenty percent year over year growth, right? And you're going to get there mostly through DeNovo, but if there's a good uh, acquisition opportunity, then you might may go that route as well. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and um, Polaris is a is a EOS traction. Um, type office. That's that's a, a entrepreneur operating systems that that they use. We use it as well. We've used it for for some time. And they talk about ten year goals. And and Jim Collins talks about the big hairy audacious goal. And I think that's important to have that goal. But the reality is that that the industry is changing so quickly, and 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 debt and banks are kind of always fluctuating. That we at least with our group, we want to have three year goals, and we'll reevaluate them every three years. And and we're just charging as hard as we can for those three-year goals. It's nice to kind of have a 10-year picture, um, but the three-year goal is really what drives us. And then we reverse engineer from there. So that that leads into the next uh, last couple of questions here, because I know you're going to get a knock on the door in a couple of minutes. So, yeah. So until I get it, I'm free. And I don't, I don't see anyone coming up the stairs. So uh, <laughs> right now we're pretty good. <laughs> that, that sounds good. So let's talk a little bit about um, what's going on with interest rates and and the impact that that you feel. We'll start with Perrin uh, on, on let's say these emerging groups, uh, number one, and then yeah, I'd, I'd love to maybe try and get an understanding if we can from the patient you know perspective, right? With less money in your pocket, uh, is it going to impact them going to the dentist or what kind of dental care they get? So and maybe that's for Jason, but Perrin, go ahead. T- tell me what you think from the uh, group practice standpoint. Yeah, it's um, these are really interesting times we're about to enter into, and um, most of us uh, have never lived through something like this, probably as it relates to to inflation and rising rates. I mean, I was born in 1970, and while I don't remember it, the Carter years were not renowned for low interest rates. And Paul Volcker, um, the chairman of the Fed, uh, is a name we all remember because he jacked rates strong double digits to try to get inflation under control. I don't think we're going to end up there. That being said, um, the abil- our, client, our core clients' ability to borrow committed funds at a reasonable rate to execute their strategy is of paramount importance. And I think you have two different aspects of the market. One, there is the M&A activity for these larger enterprise-level groups and their thirst for acquisitions uh, and, and expansion going forward. Um, the people that run the business development teams get paid to do deals. They have equity opportunities on recaps. The bigger the business gets, the better typically that they do. So it depends. Uh, M&A activity to a great degree depends on um, the the private equity group that is the sponsor and where they are, uh, how they are using debt funds. If they're borrowing money from a bank, the federal funds rate that we've read so much about that's going up uh, 75 uh, basis points and and um, you know the the rising rates that uh, Chairman Powell is forecasting are going to directly impact their cost of capital structure and we should assume that um, the uh, valuation multiples they are able to pay based on internal rate of return projections are going to be impacted from that. On the other hand, you have a lot of uh, private equity backed enterprise level groups that work with something called non-bank lenders. It's still a tr- it's still a debt structure, but it's not from uh, a banking institution. Um, if they are using non-bank lenders, 
to get their deals done and for their, their capital structure. Those rates are probably based off of LIBOR and they're probably already relatively high and they may not change. If they don't change, then those uh, private equity backed groups are probably able to offer similar valuation multiples as we have seen historically. So the way this starts to play out in the coming six to nine months, I would say, as we roll through the end of the calendar year, is going to be really, really interesting. We've heard from a lot of different enterprise buyers for the groups we represent. Some have zero pipeline, some have a healthy pipeline. Uh, and that's just going to be uh, maybe a tale of two halves in the industry. For people like Jason that are still using what I would call traditional banking and debt structure, um, it will impact uh, their borrowing rates. But the idea is still that if you're a savvy operator like Jason is, if he were um, doing this more from an acquisition standpoint, the ability to create equity on balance sheet at a faster rate than the cost of the debt that you're using is still completely in your wheelhouse. That is why you do it. You don't slow down your growth strategy based on rising cost of funds. You consider it for sure, but it places more of a burden on you as an operator to increase uh, or unlock that profitability that Jason mentioned before. And I still think there is an unbelievably compelling opportunity in the coming years for that. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, Jason, on the, the, the patient side of things, uh, what, what are your thoughts about um, you know, how patients are going to react to the inflation? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I definitely like like in any recession, um, whatever degree of recession you want to call it, people are going to be a little bit more apprehensive to spend money. And dentistry is not recession proof, but it's as close of an industry as you can possibly get. So if I was giving any advice to any clinical dentists or any entrepreneurs that have dental practices, it would be to double down on the services that no matter what the economy is saying to us, you know, people still need to have a bad tooth taken out. People still need their wisdom teeth out. Kids are uh, always going to need braces and parents are always going to pay for it. These are things that I would encourage people to be doubling down on and get as much continuing education as you can and provide those services. The, the 10 units of veneers or the elective Invisalign, those are the service mixes that are probably going to be put on the back burner uh, depending on what the economy ultimately does. One thing that I want to echo that Perrin just said. So first off, everything that Perrin just said is so far above my head. That's why I love having a relationship with him and DeWalker where I can just shoot him a text and be like, okay, tell me what to do here, Perrin. Um, because I would have to go back and listen to what he just said 10 times to really have any clarity on what he was talking about. But secondly, I think there's a strategy difference that really needs to be considered here. And I'll give you a great example. Um, the, the labor shortages, the cost of materials, the delay in materials, that doesn't necessarily affect the acquisition model nearly as much as it affects the de novo model. And a great example is I've got final bids on a practice that we're considering building. The plan was to start this fall. The final bids are $350 a square foot which is almost a third more than it was a year ago. So yes, I do. I'm not scared of the possible pending recession, but if you had to pick a strategy over the next few years, the acquisition model certainly seems like there's less risk involved um, than the de novo model, simply from the, the labor shortages and the cost of materials 
um, in the coming 12 to 24 months. Really, really great point. Yeah, and coming from somebody that's only been doing de novo, you would know that uh, better than most. So, um, yeah, can I, Bill? Can I say something really quick on, yeah, on de novo? Because you don't get too many um, opportunities to talk to people like Jason that are are more committed to the de novo approach for the reasons that he is, and and I think. You know, he's, he touched on something in a prior answer of like sitting in a room and hearing that that guy's got 10 locations and somebody else has 2 million in EBITDA and, oh, I should do it too. I think the meat, you know, our first order of business at Polaris is to actually talk people out of building a group because we know how hard it is. And and Jason has the the battle scars to prove it. But those that do decide to build a group typically go at it by acquisition because they're usually a decent number of practices that come on the market. And the the thought process is, well, it's an existing business, it's got existing patients, and there's some level of profitability. So even, even if I'm not a good operator, the downside risk feels less. And all it takes is one bad acquisition, and that's typically from a culture and an integration standpoint, to screw the pooch, really. And, and, those that learn that lesson and live through it and can tell the story, maybe they course correct and maybe they have a better due diligence process around culture. But Jason hitting using the word culture as many times as he has and having listened personally to Mark Costas talk about this from the stage, if you're going to build a successful group practice, getting the culture right and being able to replicate culture is a, of critical importance. And it is arguably a lot easier to do that in a de novo approach. DeWalker and I love the de novo model. If you know your numbers, if you can if you can build a budget and on time, and you, you know how to scale the business to a degree of, of operational and uh, break-even and uh, equity on balance sheet, de novo is wash, rinse, repeat. And it can be a really, really great strategy as an alternative or a blend or an outright strategy for growth. And I mean, I applaud him for for going as far as he has with de novos. And, and it's the reason that we really love it. I mean, Peter Drucker, the dean of the USC Business School, has that quote that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I mean, it's really 100% true. And those of us who've lived through failures of culture and integration are a, a testament to how how applicable it is. I just wanted to, to reiterate that point for a quick sec. Great. Well, I think this is this probably a great place to um, to, to stop. I, I think what I'll do, do is ask uh, Jason, if anybody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, email, LinkedIn? Well, as I told you in the discussion before the call. I didn't know I had a LinkedIn profile. So probably you do, not you do. <laughs> uh, yeah, email is probably the best way. Um, it's just my full name, Jason Robert Tenori uh, at gmail.com. Um, and uh, if, yeah, I'm, I'm more than welcome to reach out. If you're on, on Dental Success Network, I can also be reached there. Uh, but I'm not a Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter guy. That might might be another podcast on on personal time management that we can we can possibly have but i don't i'm not a social media guy really there there you go well, i wish i could say the same for myself uh but uh, <laughs> what we'll do in the sh- <laughs> in the show notes we'll make sure that we uh we we put in your email address there jason thank you um Perrin, how can people reach out to you or find out more about polaris healthcare partners yeah i mean uh through our website's probably the easiest thing um 
which is www.polarishealthcarepartners.com, polarishealthcarepartners.com. We looked for the longest unclaimed URL, and I think we actually found it out there. Um, you can uh, link to our podcast, which is called Group Practice Accelerator off the website. You can book a call with me. There's a, I think there's a link to our YouTube page where we have a bunch of videos and things like that. And there's a, there's a ton of content there that we're adding to on a, on a daily basis. If you'd like to email me directly, that is probably the best way to, to get me. And it's Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N at polarishealthcarepartners.com. I'm happy to trade emails or book a call and um, dig into whatever situation your audience has. So thanks so much for for having me on the, the show today, Bill. This has been great, really. And I'm sorry it's taken us this long to get it done, honestly, but really appreciate it. And there is, there's, there's quite a bit of, of really great information here that what we have not had on this podcast before. So Dr. Tenori, really, really appreciate the insights from you and of course from Perrin as well. So uh, all those links that Perrin shouted out there, you don't have to memorize any of those. We'll put them in the show notes, even though he has the longest URL, ours is pretty long too. But uh, we'll, we'll stop there. Thanks, thanks to both of you. And thanks everybody, most importantly for listening in and watching us today on the Group Dentistry Now show. Until next time, I'm Bill Newman. The Group Dentistry Now show has listeners across North and South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. If you like our show, subscribe today and please tell your colleagues about us.